The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 121, Grab Bag, part 5, The Quickening. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Comic Book Time Machine. My name is Ben, Ben Avery, and I am a comic book time traveler. And that means I read comic books from the past, which uh, those of you who are sharing the typical time stream with me, that's generally the only kind of comic books we're able to read. Comic books from the future, well, we just can't get to them. It's just we don't have that reach with our time machine, but uh, we, we do have the ability to read comics from the past and hopefully enjoy them. Now, one of the ways I enjoy reading comic books is what's called the comic book grab bag, which is something that um, I used to get when I was a kid. Uh, and so I have very fond memories of getting these bags with three or four comics in them. You open them up. Usually thematically, they are tied together. Um I would get, you know, the Star Wars one that I could see in the bag. There's two Star Wars comics. What's in the middle? What's in between them? What's what's the creamy center between the two cookie halves? Uh, and then I remember getting one that was Whitman sci-fi comics that included Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and uh, Swiss or Space Family Robinson. And, you know, I can't remember what was on the outside, but I'm pretty sure Buck Rogers was probably one of them on the outside where I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get that one because that's cool. But what's, you know, there's the bread. On the, on the two sides of this comic book bag, this poly bag that they have, what's what's the peanut butter? What's the jelly in the sandwich? And so I've done a few episodes where I've opened up grab bags. And uh, I actually just recently on this free comic book day episode that we did, I talked about how I picked up a couple grab bags from a free comic book location. And uh, those grab bags are still sitting on my desk uh, waiting for a rainy day in the future at some point um and but i also have some that are still left over from when i was buying these from target and uh target doesn't have carry these anymore in their collectible uh, area uh, at least they haven't since i've i've been there um i mean it's been quite a while since i've seen them at target but i did last time i was at target bought a couple time before that i bought a couple and i again just saving them for a rainy day so to speak a, a quote-unquote rainy day and today is a quote-unquote rainy day it's not an actual literal rainy day i do believe it rained earlier this morning um but it hasn't it's not raining right now um, I just have some time to kill. I'm alone. There's nobody around. I feel like reading some comics. I feel like talking about some comics. And so I pulled one of my target grab bags. Now the target grab bags are poly bags that are see-through on, you know, the front and back and it says four out of print originals, collectible comics. And on one side I can see, and this is the reason I bought this is it's the mighty Thor number 248 and cover price on that one is still only 25 cents. That's an old book. But on the other side, issue 43 of Ultimate Fantastic Four. And it says Silver Surfer Part 2. So a rather uh, somewhat newer book, at least compared to the Mighty Thor one that I got. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this the way I normally do a grab bag episode. I'm going to take 
this bag. I'm going to open it right now. We're going to find out what is the peanut butter? What is the jelly between the slices of Mighty Thor and Fantastic Four bread? What is it? Well, we're going to find out in just a moment. Let's see here. Opening it up right here. Mighty Thor issue number 248 is from, uh, looks like 1976. This one is just two years younger than I am. I still have not looked to see what's underneath that. I want to check the Fantastic Four, Ultimate Fantastic Four, I should say, and see what year that is from. And I really need my reading glasses because that is some very, very fine print. Uh, 2007. 2007 so that one is 11 years old and let's see what is in between oh interesting okay so it's starman number 42 uh by james robinson and uh says there's a picture there's starman there's the demon uh from from dc and science and sorcery 1944 guest starring the demon interesting that is from 1998 so, yeah, we are really going back in time here. And then <laughs> Legionnaires. Okay. Legionnaires. And it is uh, 1994, issue number 13. Uh, the Legion of Superheroes and their world is something that I have a love-hate relationship with. I love the idea. I hate the history. <laughs> so, um I really wish I could get into the Legion of Superheroes, and I have tried on multiple occasions, especially when DC has been touting it as a jumping on point. Um, I'm guessing issue number 13 of Legionnaires is not a jumping on point, except on the cover here, it says there's a new girl in town, which I can't help hearing there's a new girl in town without hearing the... Uh, uh, the Alice theme song. There's a new girl in town. That's the only words I know. Do, 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 do. She was just passing through, but I sing here for whatever. Uh, but it says there's a new girl in town. And then at the bottom, it says, and she's matter eater lad. Okay. So I thought maybe with a new character, this would be a jumping on point for that. But instead, it looks like I'm getting a story about matter eater lad becoming a girl. So there's that from 1994. So I think I'm going to take these in chronological order backwards as if we are just passing back through time so i'm going to start with ultimate fantastic four number 43 then i'm going to go to yes starman number 42 from 1998 and then we will go to legionnaires number 13 from 1994 and finally way back in time the mighty thor Issue number 248. And I have to admit, I'm very excited about reading this. Uh, there's the potential of it being great. And there's a potential for it being just kind of whatever. But we'll see what happens. And so, as usual, I'm going to play a, uh, a promo for a uh, comic book or comic book related, comic book adjacent podcast that um, you might be relevant to your interest. But for now... That's what we're doing. So let us go back in time now, just a few years, and I'm going to read Ultimate Fantastic Four for you. It's going to be about 30 seconds to a minute and a half, depending on the promo I decide to play. Uh, for me, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes. We'll see. We'll see. I do not like the idea that this is Silver Surfer Part 2. Um, but if it's good, that means it's going to be something I seek out and read the rest of. And if it's not good, well, I won't. So, yeah, here we go. 
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And I'm back, and I've just read Ultimate Fantastic Four issue number 43, Silver Surfer, part two, written by Mike Carey. Uh, with Pasquale, Pasquale Ferry as the artist, uh, Justin Ponzer as the colorist, VC's Russ Wooten uh, doing the letters, and edited by, well, it doesn't say. It's John Barber, and it just says Endless Summer, Ralph Macchio, 20-Minute Winter, Joe Caseta, editor-in-chief. Interesting. Well, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, this was definitely a trip back in time, back to 2007, when, um, well... Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, uh, was apparently a, a deal. It was happening. And there is an advertisement for Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, the video game, available on Wii and PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. There's also an advertisement for Milk, a Got Milk advertisement. It says, Fantastic Four, want to look super? Some studies suggest that teens who choose milk instead of sugary drinks tend to be leaner, and the protein in milk helps build muscle. Staying active, eating right, and drinking three glasses a day of low-fat or fat-free milk helps you look your best. That's no stretch. <laughs> so there we've got the, uh, the team from the Fantastic Four, 20th Century Fox films. And there's Chris Evans right there, uh, you know, looking younger, looking clean cut, but at the same time looking a little bit how he looks in uh, Avengers Infinity War. Um, he doesn't have the beard, but he's got the stash, the milk mustache. So yeah, there's a blast from the past, but it also, uh, suggests why they chose this point in time to, um, introduce Silver Surfer to the ultimate universe. There's also an ad to be in a Hulk movie. The Hulk is going to be in a Marvel movie. Are you enter for a chance to win a walk on role? Be in a Marvel movie sweepstakes. What's better than seeing a Marvel movie? Being in a Marvel movie, enter the Being a Marvel movie sweepstakes and you could win the walk-on role of a lifetime in an upcoming Marvel Studios movie. Go to Marvel.com to enter. Yeah. 2007. Then there's an ad for the Fantastic Four cartoon, an ad for Spider-Man 3 birthday decorations uh, for your cakes. And cupcakes from cakes.com, and also an ad for Spider Man 3 betting in case you wanted Sandman and Venom on your sheets for when you go to bed at night. Yeah, so that was a little bit of a, a blast from the past. Now, what I was dreading was that because this is part two, I'm going to either start this out lost, not, even, not only part two, but 40, issue 43 uh, started out lost, but I wasn't. I knew about the Fantastic Four, who they are. I just needed to remember that they were um, kind of playing them a little bit younger than typical. 
from my experience anyway. And I did read the first six issues of the Fantastic Four from the Ultimate Universe uh, back when they were coming out. And so I, I remember that they were young, young-ish, comparatively speaking. Uh, what I didn't know was uh, Reed Richards had a, uh, a sister who was in here trying to be annoying and doing a good job of it. Not to me, to the reader, but to to Reed. Um, and she apparently has some superpowers. But anyway, uh, I wasn't lost as far as the characters are concerned. And they were the classic characters with classic uh, personality types. Uh, I was also afraid that I'd be lost because of the storyline. And I wasn't. They had a good previously in can't recap in the first page um at first i felt a little weird i wasn't sure what i was getting when uh, says for weeks reed has been obsessing over plans for a powerful cosmic device plans that were planted in his mind by an alien force in his efforts to find a power source for this cube reed attempts to draw energy from an other dimensional star but things go awry when the star is drawn into our universe causing catastrophic climactic events across the earth Stranger still, the thing that Reed has tapped into isn't actually a star, but a surfboard. The Fantastic Four and Reed's sister, Enid, who recently manifested superpowers, quickly analyzed the object and realized the board wasn't the energy signature Reed had latched onto. It was the board's owner, who's bigger than a planet and bearing down on Manhattan. So I don't know exactly. (laughs) This is what threw me. I don't know how exactly they knew that this thing that was bigger than a planet was bearing down on Manhattan. Um, But. In the issue, the thing is getting smaller. And honestly, this could have worked for me as a first chapter simply because it just starts in media res. And you figure out as you're going along that Reed tapped into this, Reed pulled this thing into our universe, and now it is crashing towards the Earth from a multiverse. He's been multiverse fishing. He caught something, and now he has to deal with what he caught. And the thing that he caught is Falling Surfer. Uh, it is that that is what is happening and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and uh, to the point where by the end of the issue, it is man sized. It's still really big as it's bearing down on Manhattan, but they are able to uh, deflect it by using their powers. And so they stop it before it hits Manhattan and they drop it off into the water. Uh, what's fun about this then from again, th- there's a lot of MCU ish type things going on here. First of all, you get uh, Nick Fury, who is based after Samuel L. Jackson, uh, and he's. He talks to Reed. He he tears a new one for Reed, which is easy because I guess of his flexibility that Reed has. But um, Reed says, I just got done talking with your handlers. Or Fury says, just got done talking to your handlers at the Baxter. And it was not a happy conversation. Reed tries to make excuses, says, sorry, this is impossible to predict. And then Fury says, yeah, then I guess it was pretty bad science, wasn't it? Like drinking poison to see if the label's right. Richards, I get this. Richards, get this straight. I tolerate the Baxter building because it gives General Ross some cool toys to play with and keeps him from trying to second guess me. But I'm seriously thinking it might be time to put the toys back in the box. Then uh, Reed, of course, is worried that they're going to shut things down. And Fury says, tell it to my field commander. She's half a click south of you at the Walled House Basin docks waiting to debrief you. So there's that. And, you know, I, I bet... I can understand now why people are really wanting the Fantastic Four. If they spent time with the Fantastic Four talking to, you know, the ultimate versions of all these other characters, I can understand why they want them in the MCU. I don't really want the Fantastic Four in the MCU. I I really am happy with them not being in the MCU because the MCU is getting so big and we need to have opportunity for characters to shine in their movies. And it's just getting so big. Three movies a year isn't enough to really allow everyone a chance to shine. And we're going to, you know, we get some characters who just get introduced and then tucked away and not really used much. Like, um, I don't know, Falcon, uh, 
But anyway, uh, the field commander that he's going to report to, Captain Danvers, which that's kind of fun. I don't know in this continuity where she is at as far as when she will get superpowers to become Captain Marvel, but it's fun to see her. And, you know, the the MCU tie-in wasn't there until just recently where we now have a Captain Marvel movie coming very, very soon. Uh, another fun thing was, um, I mean, she just puts Reed in his place. And it's just a fun line of dialogue where um, Fing says, pwned. And Reed says, that isn't even a word. And then Johnny says, it's got to be, dog. Otherwise, there's no way to describe what she just did to you. And that was fun. You know, just the, the interactions are still fun. Fantastic Four interactions. And I, I liked it. I like the family unit that they have. There still feels like they're still kind of working out who's in charge, working out who does what. And they're not really listening to each other. Um, Reed has a plan and he says, please just do the plan. And quit asking questions because people are going to die and the other team members don't appreciate that, especially um, – I can't remember. Especially Sue. That's what I was trying to say. Especially Sue. Uh, so then after that, uh, Silver Surfer is unconscious and they put him in binds, bindings and he breaks out of it. No surprise. He's really powerful, but they don't know how powerful he is. And then he's just really thankful and happy. And I'm thinking, that's really interesting. And if I stopped, if you stop right there, uh, it almost would be a self-contained story where it's just they they had an alien falling and then they did this thing together to stop the alien from destroying the city. And then it turns out the alien's friendly and happy. And he's not, though, because he is going to set the beacon. So he says, oh, he says, it's, it's kind of fun. He, he talks about how, oh, it's been so long. It's been a million lifetimes. And then he says, I'm Norrin Rad. And. Uh, then he starts realizing, oh, there's buildings and there must be millions of you. And this is only a one city and one landmass. And he, I, I sense chemical gradients, fossil fuels, how wonderful. And then he says, I have to build the beacon so that my master can come and claim you and make you happier than you've ever been before. Oh, but of course, I was forgetting these things have their own logic and their own particles. First, there must be death to be continued. And. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to run out and buy, you know, issues 44 through 48 or whatever to get the rest of the story. Um, but actually, I enjoyed reading this one, even if it didn't pull me in enough to to get the, the next ones. So anyway, uh, this was a fun one. So now I'm going to read Starman, issue number 42 from 1998, but about 1944. So I'm going to pop open a Diet Dr. Pepper, and I'm going to sip myself some Diet Soda as I read Starman. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what?
Okay. So times past, this was called um, Starman. Uh, the, it's writer James Robinson, penciler Matt Smith. I'm assuming not the Doctor Who Matt Smith. Inker Wade Von Grod, Grobadger. That is a cool last name. Uh, colorist Greg Wright, letterer Bill Oakley. And uh, it's called 1944, Science and Sorcery, A Tale of Times Past. And so the narration for this book comes from the present day Starman, I'm assuming. Uh, I don't know exactly because I don't know much about the present day Starman, present day being 1998. Uh, but the story itself takes place in 1944. And he so a journal entry is being written by present day Starman about the story that he heard from the Starman from the past. And so Starman from the past looks like a superhero, brightly colored costume. He has the cosmic rod that I know about. I know modern day Starman has the cosmic rod, but wears like a leather jacket and um, steampunk goggles and that kind of thing. Uh, the story itself is a little bit confusing at first because they are doing a dual timeline. Uh, they're following two stories, two places. Uh, one is basically Starman. And he's investigating uh, Nazis who are – they found a book and they're going to do a ceremony that's going to cause some magical thing to happen and help them with the war. The other side of the story is uh, the demon and the demon's um, alter ego. And so at first, it's easy to follow because it's the first page, half and half. The second, you, know, you open the page to page two and three, one page goes to Starman, one page goes to the demon. Then it gets a, it's not quite as balanced. And so like page four is one panel with the demon, but three panels with Starman. And then it gets even more mixed up than that. There is a page, there's a nice page, page six, where it has um, these white outlines of some scientific equipment on one panel that's half the page vertically. And then the white outlines mimicking that, but instead of steam coming from like um, test tubes, it's uh, smoke coming from candles, and it's these long candles that are in silhouette. And behind them, you have um, Starman in a lab, and you have uh, the demon's alter ego reading a book. And so you have this kind of dual storyline until they come together to stop the Nazis from doing their arcane ceremony. And when they first meet, they it's classic. Uh, superheroes meeting each other, they start to fight because Starman is getting ready to attack the Nazis, but the demon thinks that Starman is there to protect the Nazis, and so they fight. The Nazis run away, get away, and the demon just leaves, stops the fight, and says, well, they're, they're not doing this now, so I don't need to be here, and I'm going to leave, and if I see you again, I'm going to fight you again. But um, then they take some time off as they wait for the Nazis to go to... Um, Location B. Now, here's where you have the other parallel thing happening. Uh, Starman is trying to seek this down using science, and he believes that magic is just science. Magic is just harnessing energies, uh, just natural energies anyway, uh, you know, like like harnessing, I don't know, um, you know, the atom. And we'll get to that in a moment. Meanwhile, the demon is, you know, studying uh, magical books and texts and tomes and stuff. And... Um, so you have the science and magic thing happening side by side. And 
then they are both drawn to the Nazis' ceremony because Starman has the scientific application that allows him to detect the energies at work, and Demon has the magical application that allows him to follow the Magic Six work as well. Now, um, they stop the Nazis, of course, and they don't fight each other because the demon realizes, oh, you're you're not on, on their side. And then they uh, have a little conversation about magic and science. And when Starman realizes that the guy standing in front of him is named Demon and claims to be a demon, he's like, no, no, it's not possible. You can't be because that's, that's not within my scientific purview. That's uh, not my scientific worldview. And the demon then gives him a prophecy that says, you don't believe in this stuff? Well, you'll believe if this comes true. And he says, uh, so Starman says, you honestly claim to be a demon? That's, no, I can't believe it. And demon says, you assume I care one jot if you believe I am or not. You'll want the proof. I'll give it here. You'll know true hell within a year. The toy you helped men to conceive, its fiery breath shall live and breathe, but you will feel so far from proud at that almighty mushroom cloud. You'll lie crazed in a sickly bed, the hell I speak of in your head. And so he gives this kind of prophecy that the A-bomb that he helps create is going to haunt him forever. And uh, this actually comes because why did he want the book? Uh, the demon wanted the book because um, he wants to go back to hell and reign hell and this book reign in hell. And this book might help him to, to take over. Um, he disappears. And then we get the final narration from the present day Starman. And it says, uh, the hell of the demon, the hell the demon spoke of was Ted Knight's breakdown. Indeed, the following year and the war's atomic end was not a time to rejoice, not for Ted. He had been one of the theorists who helped at the onset of the Manhattan Project. Whether his contribution had been so great as to make his guilt and subsequent breakdown in 1946 deserved may never be known. But I wonder if Enola Gay's spawn was the only reason for Ted's collapse. Or was it a different kind of spawn in the knowledge that its existence meant that not everything lived by the rules of science and that Ted Knight's world was suddenly that much more the fragile for knowing it. Also, the cause of Starman's sad descent from the heavens. So I don't know about the sad descent from the heavens. I don't know what that's referring to. Um, but other than a couple things like that, that's kind of re referring to things outside this story, the story is a nice one-and-done one-shot. And it's a about a scientist who suddenly realizes there's much more things uh, in the world than his worldview ever imagined. And now he's, you know, forced to live not just by there's science out there, but there's magic out there as well. Um, I, I like that. I like that comic a lot. Um, I don't remember how much I spent on this. I think it's $6, which comes out to $1.50 per issue. Um, you know, and, and you're taking a risk with something like this. Uh, but the fun from opening the bag and discovering these things, you know, makes up for some of the pricing, but these issues themselves so far, I've, I've enjoyed both of them and they both haven't been so tied into continuity that I don't know exactly what's going on. This one just felt like a, uh, a world war two romp with, uh, Americans, going after Nazis on their home soil as, as they're doing magic and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's Indiana Jones stuff. It's the Rocketeer stuff. It's, it was, you know, that kind of uh, pulpy World War II historical fiction. Uh, there's also one panel with a Green Lantern in it. So that's, that was fun. But um, 
yeah, Starman, number 42, thumbs up. And so we come to the potential thumbs down. After the last two, um, I'm hopeful, but we will see. We will see. So Legionnaires, number 13, here it comes. In 1915, the world went to war. Nations in Europe met across muddy fields in a conflict that stretched across empires, across the world. This is in history books. John Adams' story of the First World War is found in the letters he wrote back home to his mother. John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast presents these letters a hundred years after they were written. Follow John Adams' story through joining the army, training and deployment on the Western Front, through his hopes and fears, frustrations and injuries, we see the personal side of a global conflict. You can find John Adams' Personal Journey podcast every month on johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters or on iTunes under John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. These are his words, read by his grandchildren and narrated by his great-grandchildren. I really, really, really want to like the Legion of Superheroes. I really, really, really want to get into the Legion of Superheroes. I really, really, really want to. But I just can't ever get into it. And this did not help at all. Uh, now, I'm guessing, I'm guessing if I had like the entire stack in front of me, maybe it'd be a completely different thing. Um, this was written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum. The uh, penciler is Frank Fosco. The anchor for the first 19 pages is Wayne Vaughn. Grawbadger, you're kidding me. That's crazy. The anchor for this book is also Wade Von Grawbadger. I've never heard of this guy before ever in my life. And then I get two comics in my hands uh, because of, wow, that's crazy. Anyway, uh, Inks pages uh, 20 through 22 is Ron Boyd. And then the letterer, Pat Rousseau and Tom McCraw is the colorist. Uh, it, this just, if I had the stack in front of me and I was reading this like a novel, maybe maybe I'd be able to follow it because this just had like, there's four different sets of characters and it's just bouncing back and forth between them so quickly. The whole thing with the cover, there's new girl in town and she's matter eater lad. Um, apparently matter eater lad, uh, has a gender reversal disease. That's common to his people. Let's see if I can find the explanation right here. It's called Grandin gender reversal disease. So it seems like it's a, a normal thing for whatever planet he's from uh, or she's from or whatever. But um, it just it, it bounces from character to character. It's a soap opera. It's it's a big, giant, sweeping soap opera. Um, there's something going on in Paris where there are anti-alien sentiments and um, an alien teleports a, one group of characters, like five or six characters into a prison. Um, just we're starting right in the middle of the action there without much setup at all. Um, they escape the prison because the prisoners try and beat them up and there's a fight and then the guards come and hate them. And so they start shooting at them and then they shoot out the back wall and let them escape, which is okay. Um, then there's a group of characters that include Brainiac five. I mean, there's certain characters. I not Brainiac five. Yeah, I think it's Brainiac five. But anyway, um, there's a, there's certain characters that I recognize and that I've read before, but I'm just not 
able to follow who they are, what they can do. Um, there's just so many of them. And they're they're dealing with some people who are trapped in some sort of vortex and it's it's some sort of mind-bending thing they need to escape. Um and then uh you've got Saturn Girl and Electric Lad or whatever his name is. Uh there's some lovey dovey stuff going on there. Um it just and they don't they don't love each other, or maybe they do love each other, they're just angry at each other. But I, I there is so much going on, so many different characters, and so just a single issue out of context. Uh, I did a thumbs down with that noise. You couldn't see it. So, but I'm ready now to read another book. And that is Thor number 248 from 1976. Yeah. I'm excited about this one on the cover. Uh, well, I'll talk about it in a moment. It's midnight. The podcasting hour. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. So, Mighty Thor, issue number 248, has an ice giant on the cover. And he has this just brutal-looking Stone Age axe. And he's holding Thor in his hand. And he's saying, you dared to invade the Tower of Solitude, Asgardian. And Thor is... Looking shocked as he drops his hammer. And like I said, the cover screams, still only 25 cents. And yeah, I mean, it cost me a little bit more than 25 cents. But um, it's honestly, well, it's not bad. It's not a bad comic. It's not the, I don't know, I don't even think, I don't think it's the best of the bunch though. Um after reading all these comics, I think the best one was Starman, and then uh, the one beyond that uh, was Fantastic Four or Ultimate Fantastic Four, and then then this, and then Legionnaires. And I, I expected this to be my favorite of the bunch. Now, that's not to say that I didn't like it. It's just to say that it wasn't my favorite of the bunch. Um, it got off to a pretty decent start. Uh, I don't know exactly um, – well, yeah, I don't know what led into this issue. This was written by Len Wein and illustrated by John Bishima and or Bishima, uh, him. Uh, Tony Dezuniga is the anchor and Glennis Wein is the colorist and Joe Rosen is the letterer. Marv Wolfman, general insurgent, whatever that means. But Len Wein is – this is the writer-editor, Len Wein. And it says, there shall come revolution. And gets off to a 
just a bang of a start. Now, I don't know where they're coming from. There's a suggestion later on that was some sort of battle that they're coming from, but Thor and Jane Foster are returning home, and there's a storm, and the storm is really bad. It's so bad that it's knocking a window cleaner and his uh, whatever carriage thing that goes on the outside of the building up and down the outside of a, a skyscraper, you know. It's going to fall. Thor saves the guy. Thor saves the carriage so it doesn't land on other people in the street. And then the guy says, you should just stop the storm, Thor. You should just stop the storm because you're the god of thunder. And he can't. He can't do it. It takes all his strength and all his might and all his power to stop this storm. And I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. We're coming up against some sort of uh, uh, foe that is going to, um, you know, give him a run for his money because of storm powers or something. It turns out he said he Thor himself suggests that it was Odin who might have actually caused him to not have as much power, which is why it took all the strength to stop the storm. And it does take everything within him. But he and Jane Foster, they fight, they do get home. And and uh, when he when they get home, she has turned on the news and there's a traffic jam uh, there in, in Manhattan. And the Warriors 3 are the cause of the traffic jam. And so Thor flies over to where the traffic jam is and uh, says how much he appreciates that they joined him in exile because Odin has exiled him. And... Again, so there's some stuff going on that in other issues that I, I don't know, but um, but they're bringing me up to speed, you know, by by with dialogue exposition and that kind of thing. Um, the traffic jam happened because someone hit Volstag, the big guy from behind, and uh, <laughs> um, the, the way they said it was the driver of the vehicle claimed he had the the oh sorry this is uh, Asgardian speaking the driver of the vehicle claimed he had not the fuel to go around the enormous one. Um, which I thought was kind of funny that this, that's the way they're, they're relating the, uh, I guess basically the New York insult against, uh, Volstagg and how big he is. Uh, Thor fixes the traffic jam by just literally picking up the vehicles and turning them around in the air and then putting them back down so they can drive away from the traffic jam and, and he fixes it that way. So then he goes home and it's just at this point, it's kind of, oh, that's really funny. I wonder what this is leading toward. Um, and really, it's just leading toward getting the Warriors 3 and Thor together so they can go back to Thor's place and find Baldar. Baldar the Great. And uh, Baldar has come from Asgard. And he comes to say that Odin hath gone mad. And so Baldar and the Warriors 3 and Thor and Jane return to Asgard because they must stop Odin while they're there. Heimdall is there and he does not allow passage. He stands on the bridge and tells, basically tells Thor, you shall not pass. And so there's a big giant battle. And that's actually probably the best, the best part of this issue is, is the artwork of the battle. It's, it's a, it's an intense looking couple of pages and really strong, strong motion. Uh, it's reminiscent. Uh, I mean, John Bishama is doing uh, his very, very best. Uh, he's not aping Jack Kirby, but he is definitely um, he's riffing on the Jack Kirby stuff, you know, and and he's making it's his own Asgard, but he's definitely pulling from what, what Jack Kirby had done before. And uh, in some of the comics that I've seen uh, of Asgard from Thor and it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. 
they win the battle. They get through. They find that Asgard is in squalor and no one is happy. Everyone is just in pain and in confusion. And uh, they do find a group of warriors who are hiding, hiding and waiting for Thor. Because you see, Odin hath gone mad. And it's it's unknown why, but they suggest that it's actually this advisor that he has, uh, kind of a worm tongue kind of guy, and and we see them together, and definitely the this advisor is feeding Odin um, thoughts and and feeding him ideas. Now whether or not he's controlling Odin, who knows? We we don't know that yet. Uh, but the warriors want to free the wise Grand Vizier, who is in the Tower of Solitude, being kept prisoner, and so they fight their way in. They get him. And then that advisor turns to Odin and says, oh, they have released him. And Odin is all, oh, I must destroy Thor now. He must die. So, yeah. Now, (laughs) it's a cliffhanger. It ends at the end of a chapter. I feel like, you know, I'm coming in in the middle of something or at the very end of something, which is okay, you know. Jane and Thor are coming home from an adventure of some form or another. And, but it, it, the ending is very unsatisfying. Uh, again, the question is, was it so unsatisfying that I'm not going to seek out uh, the rest of it and maybe try and find, you know, find out what happens next. And, and yeah, the honest truth is I am not going to, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to seek out the ending of this because I just don't need to, you know, I mean, I already I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is uh, somehow they're going to figure out why Odin is mad, and then they're going to rescue him from that. And um, yeah, I, the details. I mean, the, the the storm giant is there at this this uh, Tower of Solitude, but there's nothing like what happens on the cover, and that's not unusual. I know, I know, uh, but I was expecting something a little bit more. I don't know, grand. Um, and I, I, there, there's some grand stuff in here. There's some big battles and stuff. But um, like I said, this one this one came in, in third in this bag. And I expected it to be first. And I was pleasantly surprised by, by the other issues, uh, except for Legionnaires. I just, I want to like Legion of Superheroes. And I just can't get into it. Um, as for this Thor thing, if, if I were to accidentally come across somehow, somewhere, the next issue, I, I would read it. I'm just not going to seek it out. That's all. And, uh, yeah, but, and, and that's the same for all of the comics in this bag. This, this bag did not serve to cause me to seek out new stuff. It just caused me to enjoy some new stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, honestly, what are comics for? Comics are an art form that in some ways are unique in that to me, this art form works best when it's making you have fun. Um, and, and I don't know, there's just something about it and, and it might be just nostalgia or something, but I love reading comics that are, are fun and, and fun comics can be thoughtful comics. They can be fun because they're causing you to think, you know, and, um, you know, and I can also appreciate the art behind, you know, something like mouse or something like that, where yes, not fun, but very artful and that, but there's an enjoyment to be had in reading something that's artful, even if it's artful about a very difficult topic. And the same is true for, for movies as well. But uh, for me, I don't know, just the four color printed page is just something that's fun. 
And I had fun reading three of the four of these books. <laughs> so uh, all that said, uh, that's that's it for this episode. I don't know what's going to be next uh, because honestly, I don't know what I'm going to be reading next. But uh, for, for right now, uh, I do have a couple more grab bags from Target. And I do have those four paper bag grab bags from Free Comic Day. So we'll see when I get to them. And uh, yeah, for now, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And I hope you are having fun with your comics too. And Godspeed.